growing up in this house. I always knew that there's this painter that had lived there. As soon as I opened my mouth, I realized she was staring at me as if I was like performing a magic trick. <laughs> So my name's Anita Anand, and I'm from Montreal. I've lived in other places like Bedfordshire, England. I've lived in the Bronx. I've lived in Vancouver. But I keep coming back to Montreal, and I've been back about 12, 13 years now, and I'm, I'm, not, going, I'm not going anywhere. I've written one book. It's a collection of short stories called Swing in the House and Other Stories. It only took me about 12 years to write it. <laughs> My name is Greg Santos. I'm a Montreal born and raised poet. I am currently the uh, poetry editor for Carte Blanche magazine, and I work with at-risk communities and creative writing classes, and I teach at the Thomas More Institute. You both lived in other places. Can you talk a little bit about how the return has had an impact on your work. I'm from Montreal, I was born here, but I went to university uh, after doing up here to uh, New Brunswick, to uh, Mount Allison University, which is a small town. Uh, that's where I met my wife. And so I got a taste of the Maritimes, so I lived there for a number of years. But then also spent my time in graduate school in uh, the United States. So I was in New York city for a number of years and also living in New Haven, Connecticut, so I would commute back and forth. And also spent some time in Paris when my wife got a research fellowship there. So a lot of this traveling to these different places ended up appearing in, in my poems, in my collections, and helped me, you know, make sense of my work. Uh, place shows up a lot. But I didn't write a lot about Montreal, I found. I think because I was living away, I was kind of focusing on the places where I, I was. But I find uh, now that I've moved back to Montreal, I moved towards writing about myself, my family, and also I think a bit more of Montreal. Um, I, it wasn't intentional, I don't think. I, but I think it just... It just happened that way, and I, but I don't know why I didn't write about Montreal as much before. It just kind of, it was in the periphery. And I think I'm observing the city more and, and, and also thinking about my family and my background, living and growing up here a lot more. Something that I notice is I can't really write about a place until I've been somewhere else. Mm. It's only when I've been somewhere else that I understand what makes it different. Mm. I don't even understand what the atmosphere is where I'm living unless I can compare it to something else. Mm. So I would say that, yeah, living other places helps me identify the, you know, the more salient. Um, so what is a salient point about Montreal about for you Montreal. that distinguishes it in a special way from other places that you've lived? Well, the fact that uh, it's a very different city depending on the season. Mm -hmm. no. Yes, no. this is true. It's almost like an, an animal with different colors depending mm -hmm. on the season. 
Another thing, and, and I haven't really directly written about it, but I find that when I'm writing, I'm often writing about people who are younger than myself, and I think because Montreal seems sometimes like a huge university campus. There's four universities yeah. or like countless number of like cégeps. Mm -hmm. There's students everywhere in the summertime. <laughs> Um, which is very different from the wintertime. <laughs> the, the summertime with the closed-off streets for the sock and underwear festivals or young people <laughs> everywhere. And there's, it's very social, you know? Yeah. I haven't found that in any other city. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from that book. It only took me about 12 years to read. Reading from the title story, Swing in the House. And it takes place, well, the beginning takes place around 1989 and the beginning of 1990. Winter went by, the weather warmed up. An unusually warm late May evening the kind of evening which always felt exciting and full of promise in Montreal. The leaves were barely on the trees, but the air was hot and sultry. People shed their jackets, walked around the plateau, soaking up the atmosphere. Jazz floated out from cafes and bars. On a sudden impulse, Lionel and Patty decided to blow their welfare check. They left Angeline with Julie and Mike while they went to a restaurant three blocks away. Julie estimated that Mike's job paid about five times as much as their friends earned under the table or received through government supplements at any given time. She longed to go out with them. She could have picked up the tab. The babies could have slept in their strollers. She told herself firmly that she was happy to babysit for them, and when they didn't come back when they were supposed to, didn't mind stopping Angeline's hungry cries by putting her to her own breast. Angeline blinked with surprise for a few seconds, then sucked greedily. I don't think Patty nurses her anymore, does she? said Mike. I know, but she didn't leave us a bottle. Julie wiped the sweat from Angeline's brow. If you ask me, she should nurse her. She could lose a little weight. Julie wondered if Mike just felt like insulting her friend to score points against her, or was actually trying to reassure her that Patty was someone who he would definitely not sleep with. Or maybe it dawned on her, though not for the first time, he was just an asshole, and this was just honesty, honesty from an asshole. She pushed the thought away. Julie told him that Patty had nursed her daughter three months, but that it seemed to make her sick. She didn't want to fight. Mike just snorted. She looked down at the baby girl and combed her damp black curls with her fingers. There was a flush across her dark cheeks. Her eyes were closed now. I think I'd like a daughter, too, she said in a playful voice. Mike gave her a look that said, well, you've got your wish, or maybe please leave me out of that wish of yours, or maybe just that he was going to bed. But as he rose to go to the bedroom, footsteps thumped up the stairs outside. He signaled to Julie to pull Angeline off her chest. By the time he opened the door to their friends, Mike and Julie both had wide, fake smiles on their faces, as if they'd nearly got caught doing something indecent. In that um, title story, 
you describe spring as uh, the kind of evening which always felt exciting and full of promise in Montreal. Can you talk a little bit about that sense of Montreal, it's, which we all have uh, around this time of year, just anticipating it? Yeah, um, the, the scenes preceding that one, you see a couple who are in a very stuffy apartment and they have a, they have a baby and they can't, they're kind of prisoners um, they're prisoners of their relationship, but they're all, they're really prisoners because it's winter outside, <laughs> and it's overheated inside. So so yeah. So when you know the, when spring comes, it comes suddenly in Montreal. It comes very dramatically. One day there it's snowing. It seems, and a couple of days later there are buds on the trees, and it's unsettling. It's exciting. People have more energy, I think, with the light, the sunlight feel more free as they shed layers. Yeah, it's a very social kind of city, Montreal, especially okay. when the weather warms up. What do you tell the, the folks that you visit elsewhere about Montreal? If they haven't been, what, what do you tell them about the city? I think what Anita mentioned, uh, I felt the same way, this inclusiveness. While I think not perfect, I think at least where we're where we live now too, uh, there there are so many different cultures around, and it's, I think it's lovely to to see that and just to to be able to to speak you know at home speak in English, but then also have have my kids like learning French around them and having that be normal, and being just an everyday part of our lives is quite nice. And I guess living in the U.S. and living even in in Paris, there was a difference there, and there's something always very comforting uh, about coming back to Montreal. I mean, also I have family here in France, who, which I've remained close with for many years, and I think that helps. But I think now, you know, putting down roots here, I, I, I really feel very welcome uh, here. It's also a little bit cheaper uh, to live here than other places, and I think people are more relaxed because of that, too. Mm -hmm. That's what I found when I came back here from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I was more relaxed, and I just found people, like my neighbors, everybody was seemed to be much more <laughs> relaxed. And I read something about um, marriage and divorce rates. Apparently, divorce rates are very high in Vancouver, and it's attributed to the cost of living, mm -hmm. actually, the, the, the extra economic stress that's put on um, marriages. I'm very happy here. Greg mentioned the linguistic duality, and I just realized, yeah, I take that for granted. There's things here that we take for granted until we live somewhere mm -hmm. else, yeah. you know. I remember um, a friend from Vancouver visiting me in Montreal, and we were in a store, I think, and I spoke French, and as soon as I opened my mouth, I realized she was, like, staring at me as if I was, like, performing a magic trick, <laughs> you know. And again, it's so, so normal for us, but elsewhere it's not so normal to, to be bilingual. Yeah. At least bilingual. Yeah. At least bilingual. Yeah, exactly. at least bilingual, that's right. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think it's true just even seeing signs and just going around to the stores and seeing English and French together. Not not living there for a while, but being in the in the US, like going there back and forth or when I was visiting Montreal again, it was jarring to all of us and see more than one language because we would get so used to to say English. And uh, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Have you had interesting linguistic challenges in that sense? Like a, a language kerfuffle, say? The only thing that I, would, I, I could say is that sometimes I'm 
dismayed when anglophones come here from other places and expect everybody to speak English to them, yeah. or when they don't, they take no interest at all in francophone culture. Mm. I just think, what a waste, you know, where's your curiosity? But mm. I don't tell them that because I, I don't like confrontation. <laughs> but I feel that often. I think people come here and they, and they say things, for example, like, oh, you don't seem to have any bookstores here, or you don't seem to have many bookstores. And, well, you know, open your mind and, you know, maybe go into a French bookstore and have a look around. Mm. A bookstore isn't a bookstore only if it has English books, right? So mm, interesting. That kind yeah. of thing. And I'm just trying to think of anything that's come up linguistically. <laughs> anyway, I... I can't really think of any that really popped up my head, which I'm, I'm surprised by. I, I'm I'm interested in how, since moving back, I wasn't sure how, when made the decision to move back to Montreal, because my wife and I were both graduate students whose uh, student visas were, were up, and so I was looking for jobs when we were still in the U.S., in the U.S., and then also in Canada. I wasn't sure if we'd move to Montreal, but... I wasn't sure how it would be finding jobs, and not that I'm I'm not bilingual. I can speak French, but I, I'm much more comfortable with English. But I can get by in French. Uh, but I find that I've been very fortunate to have been able to find quite a number of freelance and contract work in English, teaching poetry to students in various communities throughout Montreal and outside of Montreal never really having a problem with that, like always being able to find something. And so I think that that has shocked me. Uh, but again, I've been grateful that I've been able to, to regularly work in English and in with with using creative writing and poetry and literature. Maybe you're uh, just very good. <laughs> I, I know, know. That has to occur to you, right? <laughs> it, it is a question that comes up frequently yeah. for people who like me, are more comfortable in English. I speak yeah. French as well, but I conduct my work in English. Mm -hmm. And there is always a question of whether to stay or to leave, or yeah. are there opportunities elsewhere that right. could work? Yeah. And you've lived all over the place in yeah, English. So. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I like it better here. There's something about speaking two languages that I think is good for your brain and yeah. good for your, I don't know, being open. Can you talk a bit more about the very specific time and place you're evoking in that story in Montreal, 1989-90? So it's the end of 1989. The Berlin Wall had come down. There's glass dust on one hand, but in Montreal there was a terrible massacre of students at l'école polytechnique. What can I say about the time? It was a it was a dark time. It was November. It was dark. There wasn't much sunlight. Yeah. Um, but the economics of that time, we lost waves of people okay. uh, to at that time. I yes. was living here at that yes, time, yes. and I recall the the destitution really. Okay. Uh, you know, okay. among young people, right, uh, right. at that time, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe because I was. Uh, a student, and I was used to living like a student. Mm. I sort of felt immune. The rent was low. I was kind of carefree, I guess. I didn't think in terms of my economic future mm. so much. I found in your story that it really evoked those memories mm. for me yes. of that time, and I thought the story captured that uh, problematic existence that people had right, here in the right. city, yes. whether they were conscious of 
being in the process of negotiating their lives here. Yes. They just did what they did right. amid this really terrible economic yeah. reality yeah. In, the, in the background. It was hard yeah. not to notice that, you know, at the time. Okay, yeah, I, interest, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I just think I, I might have been in a bit of a bubble because I was a student and my friends were artists or students and we never expected to be rich. Our rent was low, as I said. Um, I know that the protagonist's husband in the story has a good job, but nobody I knew had a good job, yeah. actually, myself. Greg, you were talking earlier about the home that you grew up in. I think Anita would like this oh, story, too. Sure. I'm yeah. sure um, <laughs> well, I'm sure Well, I mean, I grew up uh, on Mount Royal. My childhood home and the home where my mother currently lives in was also the home of a uh, painter, uh, Anne Savage, who was part of the Beaver Hall group. And there was recently, a couple of years ago, a wonderful exhibit about the Beaver Hall painters and artists at the Musée des Beaux-Arts. And um, I recently received a, a Calc Research and Creation Grant, which was my very first grant, so it's very exciting, thank you, um, to work on this project that's inspired by, by Anne Savage's work, but then also about, uh, I guess, her family and then the connection that I think I've always had um, Growing up in this house, I always knew that there's this painter that had lived there, and we had books of hers that were left there by her family. Um, but then, uh, uh, so there's some um, interesting parallels uh, once I started reading more and more about her, and about, um, I guess my upbringing and my experience of going into the arts. Um, but uh, aside from that, I just felt that connection. But then one day I was coming home from visiting uh, I was living in in uh, Paris at the time, uh, so I was coming home to look through some look for some stuff and uh, to find stuff for for my daughter and uh, uh, visiting my mother. And uh, I found in this uh, drawer some more older letters and ephemera that I just thought was always part of the regular collection I'd found when I was growing up. But it turned out that there was these letters that seemed to be dated from the turn of the century that were for Anne Savage's father. And then the first thing that I stumbled across was this newspaper clipping about a dead body. And I was going, what is this? And I was just, you know, wanted, I, I didn't know what it was. And I kept looking into it more and more. And it looked like that there was somebody who, who died or someone, it turns out, had gone missing. It looks like it was a, uh, a family member. Uh, so I've, I've I put it aside, not normally what it was, and then I've gone back to it and through my own research, found out that it was a half-brother of Anne Savage's mm. who, who uh, seemingly disappeared again at the turn of the century, and now it's been trying to figure out what happened and also just learning more about the history of this artist and her, her family. But then also this mystery about this, this half-brother and uh, I, I'm so working on a book, and it's it's yeah, it's very exciting because I just feel like a, a detective, mm. but uh, um, quite wonderful to be able to find uh, these I'd say these treasures that I've uh, been able to start writing about. Anita, is there any figure, artistic or otherwise, that you find haunts your work mm. in a similar way? A Montreal writer, even say. 
No, I'm sorry. I can't think of anybody. I mean, <laughs> I, I, okay. if you said who haunts Montreal, I would say Leonard Cohen haunts mm-hmm. Montreal. Of course. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what influences you would find in my writing because mm. I read a lot as a kid, and I'm mm. sure that those people, the people that I read as a kid, um, would might be um, John Updike, mm-hmm. um, Alice Munro, Margaret Lawrence. I read a lot of them. I read some French writers. I don't know. Like I just I read a lot, and I'm always hoping that I'm not copying anybody. Oh. <laughs> like my my fear is that you know I'll open up my book and and read a line and think that isn't even my line. I you know I lifted it from somebody else. You know <laughs> because how do you know? You know. Well, it's true. We read so much, and yeah. I think that's part of the process. Like when I'm not writing or I'm not able to write, I think reading definitely helps, and it, it might jog something in our minds or. But yeah, it, it's it's really hard to, to to be sure. Okay, wait, did did I just did I read that somewhere else, or is that actually right. from my head? I don't. Is that know. is that our lyric from a song I heard right. on the radio? You know. Yeah. So what are you working on now? Um, working on two things. I'm translating a book by Juliana Levy Tridel. It's called Mirlet. It's about um, community in northern Quebec. It's a very very moving account of life up north and uh, I'm also writing a novel and the novel right now has three threads in it I'm not sure how many of the threads I'll be keeping I've written a number of pages I've written like something like 70,000 words but it doesn't have the shape that I want yet so Mm. I don't know what's going to happen with it yet it's set in Montreal but part of it is set in India it's my parents story Mm. oh yeah so um, in terms of work that I'm uh, currently on is uh, like I mentioned the, the so this Anne Savage book and I think uh, it's it's been a way to actually explore Montreal's history my my own family history because it's been interesting kind of going back there and looking into my memories in that way but also in like Montreal's history with the uh, with the artistic community has been quite fascinating so that this whole project has kind of I think brought me back to Montreal much more than I, I anticipated. So that's that's my big uh, <laughs> work currently. But then also, uh, you know, I have a book that a manuscript that I finished, and I'm shopping around, hoping it, it finds a home somewhere. A lot of the pieces are maybe a lot more personal than, say, my first two collections of poetry, just because the the movement was me starting to move into discussing family history. And I didn't think I was comfortable enough to do that until more recently. And so that's kind of a new new territory for me. So just those. So uh, poetry and this book, uh, Into Canadian Art, which has is, is been kind of new and not new for me. A little detail is that when I was growing up, before wanting to be a writer, I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist or a painter. And so I think that's kind of entering unexpectedly into this uh, new work that I'm working on. Do you think you'd ever write a graphic novel? I I would never say never. Do you still uh, draw? And that's the thing, I don't as much. I think I do a little bit more now with my kids. They often ask me to draw something, but I, I kind of set that aside because I was so focused on poetry. And that's where my mind has been for so long. But I, I would you know I would love to write a, a children's book or... Uh, I would love to do a graphic novel too, but I just I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, it would be cool. I just would probably take a while before I, I get to that point. 
I'm gonna read um, some poetry from uh, my book, The Emperor's Sofa. This poem is titled, Oh, Canada. The Canadian beaver is known for its industriousness. It is also known for being mild-mannered and polite. It mates for life and is a very social animal. It lives and works with others in pastoral harmony. But be forewarned, the beaver is not to be taken lightly. It has been known to fell small trees, creating limpid ponds, which, while ideal for reflection, can cause dangerous flooding in low-lying areas. The beaver's ability to change the landscape is second only to that of humans. Recently, a crudely fashioned beaver lodge was spotted along the banks of the Bronx River. How can we be certain that these creatures will not overtake us? This new and deceptively cuddly form of eco-terrorism has no place here. We must not rest until all alien beavers have been rounded up and interned. We shall relocate them to Wisconsin and Ohio. Our national security depends on it, my friends. This poem uh, is from Rabbit Punch, and it's titled The Great Hoarder. Sometimes when my wife and kids are asleep, I feel like I'm forever filling up an attic with boxes of knickknacks I'm not prepared to throw out, but I have no clue what to do with. I think of errands to run. I have to go to the bank. Diaper supplies are dangerously low. We are out of milk and orange juice. Other thoughts drift by like odd deep-sea fish. Will I be able to read all the books that are piling up? My hair is getting too long. Does anyone read my poems? I wander this dark attic when I cannot sleep, thinking of friends I've lost touch with and speak to ghosts in need of company. They want to know what it's like to be young and laugh at my talk of being mired with responsibility. Well, you haven't changed diapers while trying to write a status update, I say. You're lucky, I tell them. You don't have to choose between Apple and Android, Taylor Swift or Miley Cyrus. Go back to sleep, Greg, they say. Those are questions for the ages. Uh, this next poem is Presidential Address. The president was on TV and told us all to keep calm. Nothing's going on. See, my wife said, I like the president. He's not freaking out like the rest of us. I turned to my wife. That man is not the president, I said knowingly. One of your poems in the New Republic of Poetry, there's this image of poets scrawling their verses onto knives. And for me, this was a very vivid image that reflected perhaps the climate. <laughs> I'm mm. not sure if you could speak to that a bit. Oh, um, well, this is an interesting poem. Just, I, I like the idea of 
uh, of the timeless quality of, of poems sometimes that there's a setting that kind of not exists in a, a real place although sometimes I do use a lot of pop culture references in them so it does either date or place the poem in a certain uh, time or space but uh, I do like to play with with both in this case in this poem it was after a, a poem by Martin Espada that inspired me but also this was written uh, around the time when I was living in New York City and the time period that I was there was uh, kind of the the post George W. Bush time and around the time like prior to Obama being elected and you know the politics was always around me and I, in this particular case though a number of these references are due to my um, my experience at, at graduate school at the new school in uh, in Manhattan and uh, often after classes or night classes uh, the students and the professors would gather around to a, a bar called Cafe Lou and um, so we talk poetry and literature, and, and it was very interesting. But we, there's also something going on there that I think still exists. It's called the Poetry Brothel. And uh, it's, it, not an it's, it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's not an oxymoron. It's not an oxymoron. But what's really interesting is I think it's still going on. Is uh, It was started by some new school uh, students uh, where they got, uh, they would get a whole a bunch of, it's actually poetry whores, as they call themselves, and they would get all dressed up, it was uh, men and women, and would would either get in, <laughs> dressed up in very provocative garb or in in just suits and just uh, would have people come in and pay to have poems read to them, and, and it, I think it still happens uh, every year. They run events, and I know they've expanded to, like, they went to Spain, they've gone to um, other parts of Europe and uh, other cities in the United States. But I know that some of the lines here came from the experience of, of attending one of uh. these, but also the conversations with my, my colleagues and poet friends. And then this, it, it felt like it was uh, with, with the political climate, but also with this community of, of, of poetry and art and uh, I know for, for myself, someone who before going to the States reading uh, Lorca's, you know, Poet in New York or reading Leonard Cohen's work, this is very romanticized, but I did feel that it, it in a way that my experiences there were very, um, you know, eye-opening for me and also very exotic in a way. So that's, I think, the poem goes into this. So the poets call their verses onto knives, flinging cutly into the air, letting chance decide, uh, that also came through an actual literal moment where I think I remember I was with some of uh, some poets and we had plastic knives and we were writing verses on oh, no. the actual knives and tossing them in the air and seeing where they would fall. But I like the idea that not, rather than spelling that out, that to, that it kind of made sense in the mm -hmm. in this idea of the new republic of poetry. This uh, I, I think I was just imagining this place that the, the poetry was. Uh, embraced. <laughs> Inside the Frozen Mammoth is created by the Association of English Language Publishers of Quebec and features writers published by our members. Interviews by Marianne Couture. Technical production and editing by Jess Glavina. Anna Leventhal is the executive producer. Original music by Pamela Hart. Cover art by Adam Waito. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this project.
For more information, visit aelaq.org.